I often liken it to little seeds. I once was looking at some little sunflower seeds. You know, they're just dots. Mm -hmm. But they know, if you put them in the ground, they know where they're supposed to go. They know what they're going to be. They become beautiful blue flowers and a vine, and they know where the light is, even though they're underground. Amazing. So I think we're all just seeds, you know? And you know where the light is, and uh, you head for it. Hello, and welcome back to another week here on the Hidden World Podcast. I'm your host, Whitney Logan. And today's episode of the podcast is something very special to me. A few years ago, I made the acquaintance of a woman named Carol Free. Carol was born in 1935, which I believe makes her 87 years old. Over the course of my acquaintance with Carol, she has shared so many extraordinary insights and memories with me. At some point recently, I decided I wanted an excuse to sit down with Carol and really interview her about her life and all the things she has seen and done. I had a hunch that in the simple telling of her story, she would be revealing the kind of wisdom I believe can only come from a long, lucid, courageous relationship with life itself. Taking the time to sit down with someone who has seen the world change as much as Carol has in her own life was an extraordinary gift to me. Since I was a very small child, I think I have always understood intuitively that the oldest person in the room often knows things that no one else can comprehend. However, it is perhaps a bit more rare that someone would be as lucid, creative, and generous enough to share themselves and their story as freely as Carol has shared hers with me. There are certain things Carol shared with me in our conversation that will stay with me all of my days. And I don't doubt for a second that you will feel enriched in the very same way as you listen to her today. One final note though, before we begin. When I asked Carol about the name she wanted me to use to introduce her to the podcast audience, she told me that her legal name is Carol Free. She went on to tell me that she had her last name legally changed to Free, F-R-E-E, in court 40 years ago. When I asked her why she chose that name, she said, I did not want my father's name. I did not want my stepfather's name. I did not want my husband's name. I just wanted to be free. So here she is in all of her contagious, courageous freedom, the one and only Carol Free. really I decided I I wanted to interview you because you've shared so many 
amazing stories and perspectives with me online uh-huh. um, that I think really probably not very many people alive have just because of your age and that you're also really lucid and you know that yeah so far so good so far yeah <laughs> um and so i think what i want to know is your you know when you were born where you were born um some of your most sort of foundational memories you know why you think you've kept some of the memories you've kept how those things have informed who you are now i was born in 1935 october 8th in shanghai china wow my father was a career marine and uh he died in china my mother came here and the japanese were attacking at that time uh and so my mother brought me to california her, her she had a bunch of relatives but she had some relatives in california so that's where we ended up and she buried my father at the presidio up in san francisco yeah i know it um then i was raised in southern california um it was 19 i i i remember very little about the 30s what i remember about china only is coming is lying down and seeing a giant sort of cream colored pipe which i assume was in the ship oh wow and i was being carried past it i have an image of that that's in my brain wow um and my daughter took me back to china for my 70th birthday mm. and we were able to find the the place we lived Uh, this wonderful man named Alex who was a guide there and speaks English uh took us there found it and took us there and um i recognized the tile wow so and we got into the apartment he went and talked to the people that lived there they let us in and i didn't recognize any of the rooms but i recognized the bathroom tile it's amazing so i recognized the tile outdoors and i recognized the tile on the floor which is interesting because i taught mosaics at ucla oh that is interesting yeah, and i never i mean most of my life i was not an artist i had many jobs many lives but mm. i didn't discover art until i was well into my 40s wow so I wonder if the tile made an impression because it would have been close to the ground and you were little and it was you know a sensory right. and I was being bathed in the bathtub so of course the bath the minute the minute I saw the bathroom I said I know this oh my gosh yeah it's incredible it was it was extremely cool my daughter's quite lovely no oh. she took me there do you remember your dad no No. Not at all. I was about 17 months old. Okay. And uh so yeah, I was just yeah. too little. Like I said, all I remember about my real littlestness is this is some big cream-colored pipes and I was moving past them lying on my back. So Yeah. 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 
Um, and when your mom moved to Southern California, um, what did she do? Did she work? Did she remarry? Uh, my mother was a beautician and she kept her license even though she was now married and moved to China. And, and I think she hated, uh, I think she hated the uh, Marine Corps life. Okay. Yeah. But, but that's just my impression. She would never talk about it. So um, mm. I don't have a lot of information from her about that, but I, my perceptions are. Yeah. Um, and uh, she, became, she opened a beauty shop, Connie's Beauty Shop in North Hollywood. And I was pretty much raised in the back room and the alley behind the beauty shop. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so this is 1937, 38. Um, and we lived with my auntie and my, my aunt Bert. She wasn't really an aunt. My, did, my mother was an only child. Mm. But in those days, any adult that a child used the first name of became an auntie or an uncle. Oh, yeah. Because it wasn't polite to call adults by their first name. Yeah, of course. Of course. So everyone was an aunt or uncle. Yeah. Uh, what, so you were raised by your mom and with some help from Aunt Bert? Uh, yes. And then Auntie Bert died. Mm -hmm. uh, she had she was a Christian scientist and she had spinal meningitis and was gone. Um, and so then my mother married uh, my stepfather. And he, uh, I think I was four or five. Okay. Um, when she married him and they bought a house in North Hollywood for $3,000. <laughs> Gosh. I remember the price of the house because it was discussed endlessly in front of me. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I hope they kept it and then sold it for whatever, yes. 10 million. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, think I grew up in that house. Oh, wow. uh, I moved away from home and uh, um, had my own home and family before that house was sold. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And, and eventually my mother moved her beauty shop from downtown to the house because it was on a boulevard, Magnolia Boulevard. And um, she added on to the front of the house and created the little beauty shop. Wow, so she continued working? Oh, yes. Yeah, good, wow. yeah. And then did you, did you ever leave Southern California? Uh, Have you lived I, anywhere else? Yeah, no. No. I haven't lived any. I've been other places. Right. I've okay. worked other places. Yeah. So I've been there for a little period of time. But um, no, I've always lived in Southern California. Well, it'd be hard to leave, I imagine. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. Yeah. Um, okay, so then after when you left home, did you leave home to get married or did you go to school? or? I left home to leave home. When I was 17, I got away out of high school and uh, I took an apartment with my best friend, Shirley. And uh, neither one of us, oh, both of us refused to pick up after the other one. So you can imagine after a month that it was. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so that experiment ended. Yeah. And then I got my own apartment, $45 a month. 
one bedroom in Burbank. That's pretty brave. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's pretty brave even now for a 17, 18 year old, like young woman. But I imagine in the, what would that have been? The f- that would be 1953, 54. It's very brave. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I've always been sort of stubborn and um, a problem for others <laughs> from time to time. <laughs> so your mother didn't want you to do this? No. Okay. So then, so how did you pay for your your apartment? How did you pay for your your Well, in those days, jobs were like this. You walked into a bank and they said, would you like a job? Wow. You walked into a bank to open an account or or something. Or I think one of my first jobs was at the Grauman's Chinese Theater in, in Hollywood. Yeah. And I was an usherette. That was right out of high school, and that paid 75 cents an hour, which was a lot. Well, it wasn't my first job. My first job, I was 13, and I gift-wrapped at a department store, and then it was 47 cents an hour. Mm. Um, But but my first full-time job was at the Grauman's Chinese Theater. That was fun because it was Shirley and I. Mm. We we no longer had the apartment, but we now shared a job. So and we were rascals. <laughs> In those days, the usherette helped people go down the aisle with a flashlight and showed them their seats mm-hmm. when you went to a movie theater. Yeah. So that was my job. Yeah, I I've seen that in movies. So yeah. Well, yeah. that's how it really was. And you learned to shield the light with your hand and where to see people. And uh, you asked them where they would like to sit and then you took them. Um, there's, there's something really sad about automation and how it how it takes away those human interactions. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. Because I had a lot of fun with the people that, I mean, I was 18, 17, something like that. Yeah. You know, we were just, Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And then what did you do after that? Uh, I got a job at uh, at an insurance company in Hollywood as a file clerk. And uh, I was so terrible at it. (laughs) My one and only firing. Oh. Which woke me up. Oh. Uh, I was fired because I didn't do any work. I, I I was a teenager. I stood around and talked and I did very little fighting. And they reluctantly let me go after a few months. But you said it woke you up. Oh boy, did it ever. That I was so humiliated and so devastated that from then on, I was the world's best employee. Oh, wow. I showed up for work early, showed up when I was gonna, said when I was gonna do it, did what I was supposed to do, stayed until a little bit late, made sure I did extra, never wanted to feel that again. You know, that's actually an amazing story because I think that it says something pretty important about you because I think sometimes other people get fired and they blame everyone, right? Uh huh. Instead of taking responsibility for that painful feeling. Yeah. Right? And learning. Yeah, well, 
it was my fault. Well, I did nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was having a lot of fun. But... I, I once got fired only once from a job where I was doing that kind of nothing when I was uh-huh. young. And I had a similar reaction. I thought, uh-oh, I better figure out what I want to do and do it well and work yes. hard because yes. I, I don't want to ever have that happen again. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So what so what did you do? What was the next thing you did? Uh, I think that's when I walked. No, then Shirley started working for the finance company. Okay. And I, of course, got a job because wherever Shirley went, I went. Because <laughs> we were besties. <laughs> and uh, we worked at Seaboard Finance. Okay. And the man there kind of adopted us because we were still teenagers. I still wasn't 20 yet. You know, I was still a teen. And so, and then I left there and I became head cashier at Budget Finance in Burbank. Mm-hmm. I was head cashier and I was 19. Wow. I was also the only cashier. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way to do it, you know. <laughs> I climbed the ladder. Yeah, right to the top. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. How old were you when you got married? I was 21. 21. How did you meet your husband, your first husband? Uh, He was my next door neighbor. I had an apartment. I had moved from the $45 a month apartment to a $125 apartment in a better part of town. And uh, he was a neighbor. What's it like to get married at 21? Um... I was being rebellious. Oh. I'm stubborn and doing what I wanted to do. Okay. 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 And that's what you wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I went to Las Vegas and got married. Oh, wow. (laughs) It didn't last long, but it was fun. Okay. How long were you married? Uh, I was married for about 11 months. Okay. Yeah. Quick. And just long <laughs> enough to produce my daughter. Oh, well then it's worth it. Yeah. Oh yes. Oh yeah. yeah. Because she is really something. What's her name? Melanie. Melanie. Um, yeah. And she's the mother of your two grandsons. Is that right? She's the stepmother of two of my grandsons and the mother of one of my grandsons. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You're very proud of all those grandsons, so. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. They're they, just, they're just my heart. They're, you know, you hear all these things on television about all these kids doing all this shit. And I just have to say, I've been so lucky. Mm-hmm. I've been lucky with my kids. I've been lucky with my grandkids. And now I have two great-grandchildren because the two older step-grandsons have both had children, one a little boy and one a little girl. Mm. And they're just babies now, you know, they're just a few months old. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Okay, so you divorced when your daughter was presumably a tiny baby. Oh yes, she was three weeks old. Wow, so that must have been really hard. It was very hard. My husband disappeared, I never saw him again. Oh my God. And uh, there were some things that happened that 
precipitated that, that are sort of grim. Yeah. Okay. But uh, my friend Shirley and I were driving and we saw this car that I recognized and we went to the door and it was a young woman and I had the baby with me and he had proposed to her and uh, was going to take her to Alaska. Wow. So I saved her, essentially. Yeah, you sure did. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, but I kept his picture and I kept his location. And he was in a small place in Alaska. And um, it's the old boy network there, you know. So uh, I was unable to uh, access him. I'm sorry. But coincidence is so weird <laughs> because 50 years later, my friend, my, my friend Janet, said she was gonna fix me up with the guy she knew in Alaska. And no I said, way. I said, okay, cause you know, I was single. And uh, so she, I'm talking to this guy in Alaska, blah, blah, blah. And he's living in um, Fairbanks, I guess. Anyway, he's gonna go to Anchor Point. And I said, oh shit, you know, I was married to a man all these years ago, blah, blah, blah. And I gave him the name. And he said, I know him. And I said, oh, God, for God's sake, do not tell him that you've spoken to me. Please do oh not. Although Melanie is now an adult woman with you know, a family. So, yeah. um, but later she wanted to find her father. Mm. So I knew where he was. And I still had his picture. <laughs> Did she find him? Yeah. Wow. She to see him. Wow. With her I, husband. Yeah. Well, okay, that's that's something. That was actually really an act of love to keep his information in case she wanted it. But I knew she'd want to know because I always want to know about my father. Yeah. I knew that. I knew that a person would want to know about their father. Yeah. So, did your mom did your mom tell you a lot about your dad? Nothing. Was, and the things she did tell me were not true by and large. Oh, how did you figure that out? Uh, through the years, I figured it out. <sighs> and then my husband now, who is a dear man, yeah, uh, drove, we drove across the United States and back. And because I'd always wanted to do that. Yeah. And so we did it. And he was <laughs> 84 and I was 80. Oh, gosh. And his children had a cow, you know, and my kids just went, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, they were worried, you know, about, about us being so old. And we were also in a 1993 Mercury Mountaineer, which is no longer even manufactured. So, but, but we made the whole trip. Anyway, we went to Washington, D.C. Um, and he took me to the Oh, wait, not the Hall of Records, the National Archives, mm -hmm. and asked the man there, and he said, no, no, all the records are blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, I was hoping to read the inquest of my father's death. And he said, oh, we have inquests. Can you come back tomorrow? Mm. And we said, yeah, we'll come back tomorrow. So the next day we showed up, and he had the entire inquest of my father's death. And I was able to 
you have to go into a little room. You cannot have a purse or a pencil or anything with you, but you can have your phone. Wow. You have to put all your stuff in a locker, not even a pencil. Wow. Could, be a, could be a funny pencil, you know? Mm. Um, so they give you a pencil and they give you some paper. But I was able to take photographs with my phone of each page. Wow. So then I learned about my father uh, a lot. I learned a lot about my father. What did you learn? Well, I, uh, he had apparently committed suicide. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so your mom and couldn't. Apparently, I was in the, I was in the room when he did, and oh. it was in the bathroom. So, oh, Carol. Yeah. So that might also be why the tiles are really burned in your brain. Yeah, probably. Yeah. But I don't remember anything about yeah. it. So just the tiles. I'm so sorry. That's... No, it's not. You know, I mean. Yeah. Still. It's it's just weird, yeah. you know. It's it's a weird uh, thing to learn, but I'm happy to know the truth. Yes, it's very important. I am a firm believer that untruth makes you insane. I agree. Being being diddled around with things affects a person's brain, and reality becomes not reality. I agree. And it affects everything. Yes. So I I'm a truth teller. <clears throat> oh, yeah. I think that our animal bodies know. Yes. When we are not being told the truth. Yes. And it distorts reality. Yes. And, and makes us have a confused relationship with our instincts. Yes. When we are chronically lied to. Yes. 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 My daughter is seven and sometimes she'll ask me questions that I don't want to answer because I think that they're too sophisticated to right. explain. You know, um, she was supposed to go to a, a camp a couple of weeks ago and there was an, a credible threat of a, of a shooting in the area. So they shut the camp down. And when she asked me why, I kind of stumbled over my words and tried to find a way to make something palatable and she just looked at me and was like mom you are not telling me the whole truth and I assume it's because you want to protect me but I really need to know I mean she was so clear with me our kid <laughs> you know because <laughs> she said this is going to drive me crazy right yeah and it's so I found a way to tell her the truth um, not like the grim, gory history of it all, no. but, but just the truth that there was a threat and that there are, yeah. there are people that intend to cause harm sometimes. And we, and we have to hone our instincts so we can pick up the vibes. Yeah. 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 So I, I, I agree with you and shielding people from the truth. I don't know. It, it has other consequences, you know, that are often just as terrible so mm -hmm. yep yeah yep. it makes people confused and um like I said reality is very important mm -hmm. and I know that as a young woman I lived in a fantasy life which allowed me to run off and get married without much thought 
Mm. Although I got a bonus, I got my daughter. Yeah. She's really a light mm -hmm. in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, also having a child will ground you in reality faster than anything. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So in some ways, you know, all children sort of break through the spell of illusion. Yes. Yes. Yeah. They bring, they bring reality right to the front door. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you do it? How did you have a baby on your own at 21, 22? Uh, I got a job. I found a woman who would watch her overnight. The first woman didn't change her. Mm. And so that woman was just the one night. And then I found this wonderful woman, Mrs. Ekman. And I could, I worked nights so that I could drop her off, spend the night, and then spend the day with her. Um, sleeping very little, but I was in my 20s. You can get away with that when you're in your 20s. Yeah. yeah. You can even get away with it when you're in your 80s. Oh, if man. You, if you pace yourself. Oh, no. <laughs> um, Anyway, I worked nights and then I picked her up about nine or 10 o'clock in the morning and I spent the day with her and then I dropped her off at Mrs. Ekman and went to work. Wow. And I, I actually had two jobs. I worked at the Department of Water and Power in downtown LA. And then I swung by the local movie theater on my way home from work and balanced the stubs for the day. Wow because I had taken bookkeeping in high school uh, and uh, then I came home. So I had that second little second job. It didn't take me very long. Wow. So you really worked hard. Yeah, I did. And you worked really hard to be with her too during the day. Yeah. 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 That's beautiful. I did. Well, I loved her. Of course. Yeah. You know, when they put her in my arms, I knew that I was capable of dire deeds. I know. Isn't that Isn't amazing? <laughs> it's amazing. I knew that I became really feral the minute I held her. I know the feeling. I'm yeah. getting teary. Um, I know. I there's it, there's a, it's I've talked about it sometimes, like there's a mystical strength. You know? Right. It's just I've never been able to call on that kind of resilience and fortitude in any other relationship. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. And you have another child, right? Yes. Later in life, uh, I married a psychologist, clinical oh. psychologist. And I had my son, Andrew. Oh, yeah. Who is also a light. Oh, well, you seem like a light, so it makes sense to me that light would come through you, too. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. That's yeah. not always been the case, but, you know, you, you, I often liken it to little seeds. I once was looking at some little sunflower seeds. You know, they're just dots. Mm -hmm. But they know, if you put them in the ground, they know where they're supposed to go. They know what they're going to be. They become beautiful blue flowers and a vine and they know where the light is even though they're underground amazing so i think we're all just seeds you know yeah. and you know where the light is and uh you head for it mm. and that's what you did yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Tell me more about that. How, how do you feel like you did that, that you kept heading for the light? Um, and the light changed. The light had different def definitions as I grew because it was a fairly narrow uh, thing when I was young. Yeah. Had to, had to do with just finding the right man and, you know, mm -hmm. sort of superficial things. Yeah. Uh, being loved, of course, always in there. Yeah. Um, and I did not love myself when I was young, mm. but I learned to. You know. How did you learn? Uh, over time, I just realized that, that I seemed to be okay. My kids were okay, and I was doing what I was supposed to do, and that somehow became enough. Mm -hmm. But also, I went into therapy uh, when I was 40, 38, something like that, 36. I was 36. I started seeing a therapist, and... Um, I learned a lot from that experience and I did a lot of reading mm. and I think maybe the reading did more than the therapy. <laughs>
Right. You're like, this is actually, I think, kind of an amazing part of your history. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And then I, uh, I became a deputy sheriff. Well, what I did was when the annulment occurred, I went downtown and I to apply for jobs. Mm -hmm. And they have a, a thing there with papers, all the different jobs that are open. So I just pulled everything that was open and I filled them all out. And uh, I got clerk typist right away at the Department of Water and Power. Mm. Um, and I also applied for deputy sheriff. Now, Water and Power paid 168 a month. Deputy sheriff paid 458 a month. Wow. My choice was obvious. Obvious, yeah. Took a long time to become a deputy. Took about a year. Uh, had to take tests and all that stuff. But I came up really high on the test. And um, anyway, I became a deputy sheriff in 1958. Oh, my goodness. How many women were deputy sheriffs in 1958? Oh, a bunch of us. Oh, really? Yeah, but we were, uh, we did not go in patrol cars. We worked in the jail and uh, Department 95, which is a um, at general hospital. It's a court for people who are either crazy or drug addicts or whatever. It's a different court. And we worked transportation. So I would have to go, you know, but I worked in the jail for about three years. Wow. And then, um, and then I worked transportation. It was very desirable to get out into transportation. That's what everybody wanted. So of course I wanted it too. Mm. And it was very interesting. I learned a lot wow. about people. I'll bet. Yeah. And the way I handled the inmates was ridiculous. I remember I was raising a little child at the same time. Yeah. Oh, so you treated them like kids. I made people stand in the corner rather than <laughs> rather than write them up and have them lose their privileges. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Did, did it work? Yeah. I bet it did. Yeah. I not you know, I got all kinds of kudos because my people would line up so fast and do what they were supposed to do so fast. And all I did was stand at the front and say, ladies. I'm responsible for you. I'll do whatever I can to get you out of here in case of an emergency. But you have to listen and line up fast because if it takes too long, I'm a mother. I'm going to have to leave you. Wow. And wow. So, so my group, I, I ring the thing and boom, they were all in line, ready to go. No Isn't talking. It, it's amazing <laughs> what can happen if you are kind and firm, right? Yeah. If you treat people with dignity and then you also really set your boundaries very clearly. Yes, well, the boundaries were set. I had to enforce them. Yes. You know, I didn't have any choice whether I was being my leader self or not. Yeah. Uh, I, I was responsible and remember I'd been fired once. Yeah, so you weren't gonna. I was gonna do whatever you were supposed to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and. Uh, but I was always kind to everyone. You know why? Because my first day on the job, when I showed up in my little suit with a peplum and my four-inch springer heels, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and they told me to change. 
um, I always realized that there but for the grace of God go I. Because mm. a lot of the women are in jail because they got mixed up with some guy and they were just wanting to do what, the, remember the era. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about much more doing what men wanted you to do when I was a young woman and, and I was a young woman then. Yep. Uh, and so a lot of women were in jail because they picked the wrong man. And God knows I knew I'd picked the wrong man. Yeah. So could have been me. Oh my gosh. You had the humility to see yourself in them and them in you. Yeah. 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 Of course. Yeah. Of course. But it's, I think what you're saying is really profound. I feel emotional again, because I think that a lot of people defend against their own pain, you know, by, by splitting the world and making themselves better than people or kind of getting identified with their privilege or their power in any one place. And that escalates all the pain that yes. people feel. And you did the opposite. Yeah. I'm, I remember when I was raised, I was raised in the 30s and 40s. Yeah. And the most powerful man in my life was my uncle Andy. Mm. Um, I don't remember him ever telling me specific things, but the way he conducted his life informed me about how it was supposed to be. Okay. And I knew that he loved me. You talk about instinct. Yeah. I knew always, never questioned, felt it from the center of my being that I was loved by this man who wow. wasn't even a relative. Wow. He's, you know, remember how uncles become. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was the lover of my Auntie Bert. Oh, wow. <laughs> and after she died, he tried to adopt me. He offered my mother money. Wow. But she wouldn't take it. He really loved you. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you have good instincts is what I'm hearing. Yeah. I was given good instincts by my Uncle Andy. Yeah. My Uncle Andy used to take me to the Turtle Mountains for this in the summertime. It's out in the middle of the desert. Mm -hmm. um, there was a gold mine there with my Uncle Jesse One Eye, who was actually a real cousin, <laughs> and Gold Tooth Charlie. <laughs> and uh, these three old men were running this gold mine out in the middle of the desert. <laughs> and I spent my summer there with them. Um, and they taught me stuff, mm. you know, how to be. Um, and they weren't weird old men. They were lovely old men who never laid a glove on me. You know? yeah. Yeah. Well, how did they teach you how to be? What does that mean? They took me around. They showed me, uh, they showed me about survival. They wow. taught me how to shoot, how to spit through my teeth, mm -hmm. <laughs> how to play poker. Mm -hmm. um, and their corrections of me were loving and kind. Mm. Unfortunately, they did not teach me to brush my hair or my teeth. So those <laughs> suffered. <laughs> so that, that's, those are some powerful memories. They're really shaping. Yeah. And I've had so many experiences. See, that's why I seem to know so much stuff because 
I've been so many places and I've done so many things and I've been so many different carols. Yeah. My- we haven't even gotten to your forties and I feel like you've already told me about 17 different lives. Yeah. 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 So the reason I asked about the marriages is because you are now in one that is yeah. really lovely. Yeah. And this is the boy that I dated when I was 19. Yeah. Uh, however, his mother hated me, mm. but his mother hated every single girl he went out with. So, mm. you know, but I didn't know that when I was a young woman. I yeah. could just feel her contempt. Yeah. Uh, and judgment. And um, also, he was an exist, he was a beatnik, a real one, mm-hmm. and an existentialist. And uh, he said, I will never marry you. Mm. And I, and I did want to get married, and I wanted to have children. And in those days, one did not, unlike the Andrew, yeah. When I had Melanie, one simply did not have a child unless one was married because yeah. the child was stigmatized as were you forever. Mm. And I knew that. So I wasn't, I wasn't willing to do that. Yeah. Wow. How did you get reconnected? Uh, in 19, 2010, I had been disenfranchised from Shirley, my old friend, for a number of years because her husband felt that I was a hippie. <sighs> I wasn't, but uh, <laughs> I really wasn't. Yeah. I was living in Santa Monica and doing what I, you know, yeah. do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I decided I was cleaning out an old phone book, and I saw her number, and I said, "Well, I'll just give Shirley a call and see." So I called and she said, I can't talk right now, but give me your number, I'll call you back. So I gave her my number, she never called back. But in in 2010, Pete called her and said, do you ever hear from Carol? Because his wife had passed away a couple of years before and he was wondering if about me. And she said, well, I'll call you back. So she called my number, now she had it, Otherwise, she wouldn't have had it. And I changed my name. Uh, I went to court and changed my name. So um, she said, can I give your number to Pete? And I said, sure. So she did. And he called. And he came over that day. He said, I can only stay an hour. Uh-huh. I'd love to see you. And I, so he came over. And uh, he stayed several hours. And then he started wooing me (laughs) wow oh yeah so when did you get married 2014 okay yeah it's been eight years yeah yeah that's amazing yeah and and this marriage feels like the I mean the way that you talk about it at least on the internet is like this is the love of your life yeah yes he's he's I should have waited for him to come around because obviously he came around, he got married eventually. Um, But he was adamant that he wasn't gonna get married. And also when I first met him, he was just home from Korea Mm -hmm. and he'd gotten a dear John from the girl that he had intended to marry. 
Mm. So I suffered the slings and arrows of the girl who dumped yeah. him while he was in Korea. Yeah. yeah. He found you. Yeah. Yeah. He, he liked me. Apparently I made an impression. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> <laughs> because how many years had it been? About 50 something years. Inc that's incredible. Yeah. But yeah. I remembered him. Um, it's a really happy ending. Yeah. 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 It is. Um, and you seem happy. Yeah. I am. Together. Yeah. Yeah. He's and a very gentle, caring person. There's no angst. There's no drama. There's no nothing except I love you, babe. And can I help you with this? And, you know. Wow. It's nice. So nice. And I bet your kids love him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're happy that I'm happy. When I was a little girl, and this is the 1930s, the end of the 1930s and the beginning of the 1940s, and the depression was still happening, and the Dust Bowl was right around the corner, or happening. Um, I could, I could, my, I, I spent a lot of time with aunts who maybe were cousins or I don't know what they were, but they were actual relatives, but they were aunts. I spent a lot of time with two of my aunts that lived in Santa Monica because my mother was a young woman and she was dating and, you know, uh, anyway, uh, my Eddie Craig, who was a Christian scientist as well. Uh, used to pray over me in front of the bookcase and send me off and I was free to go for the day and I was four or five years old. Oh my goodness. And I was in Santa Monica. So I could go down to the boardwalk because she lived at number 29 Sunset. So it's just very close to the boardwalk. And uh, the other one lived at number 10 Sunset. So um, that was my Aunt Bernadine. Mm -hmm. um, I would go down and I would get on the tram and go down to the pier and <laughs> just wander around uh, Santa Monica all by myself. I could remember wending my way between the houses and, you know, I had to come home before dark. Wow. Or if I was hungry, I'd come home to get something to eat. But at four or five years old. Oh, yeah. I go um, down and get, I, I would go down and swim. And I didn't know how to swim, of course, but I could go in the ocean, but I couldn't read. So I remember once I had this beautiful uh, cape that you wore over your bathing suit. And I was very proud of it. And I, I went down, I got in the ocean and the lady came to me and said, can't you read the sign? And I said, no. And it was a sewage spill. So I shouldn't have been in the ocean. Oh dear. So then I had to go home, but I didn't want my cape to... <laughs> <It's> messy <laughs> you just carried it away from you oh carol so cute <laughs> i didn't get sick or anything so that's good it was oh all my good. word children, children were treated much differently in those days yeah strangers would uh do things for you you know <sighs> Um, strangers would kind of take care of you if you looked like you were in trouble. Uh, somebody would give you a hand, and of course there were dirty old men 
there are always dirty old men, always have been, always will be. I remember one wanting to, me to go under the pier because he wanted to show me something and I knew better and I was five. Yeah. And I said, oh, I see my mother. Yes. And I ran over to some lady and said, the man wants me to go under the pier. And she gave mm -hmm. him a look and he disappeared. Oh my gosh. So, but I knew to do that. So you really have good instincts. And also you might have one or two or three or a thousand guardian angels. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> possibly. But anyway, um, and then I, somebody would give you a ride for free on the uh, carousel. Some nice adult would notice that you're longing at the carousel and put in a nickel for you. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. So I'm always, I was that line from that movie, I rely on the kindness of strangers. <laughs> it's true, you did, you know. Yeah, and then when I was about uh, five, I know the Second World War started and that, I felt that in the pit of my stomach. The, we were having breakfast and the radio came on and it was the president. And we all loved the president. Mm. Um, and uh, my mother said, oh, my God, Bob, we're at war. And I remember her tone of voice. My whole stomach dropped. I knew something bad was happening. I wasn't sure what that was, but I learned what that was. And then we had the Second World War. That was a lot of my growing up until I was almost 10. Wow. And uh, that was a strange episode of childhood. I bet. Yeah. Do you know, um, are you familiar with the American Girl dolls and their stories? I know about the American Girls doll, but I do not know their stories. One of the American Girl dolls name is Molly. And I'm not even sure they make her anymore, but she was a World War II era American girl. And mm -hmm. I, I was transfixed with her story and her, because she did all these things like for the war effort as a child. Right, right. And so her little books with her little story had all these details about all the things that she would do to help the soldiers. Right. Collecting bottle caps. And, and I remember just thinking when I would read this as a child, you know, Molly was my hero. She was a patriot. She was a citizen. She was eight or whatever, but she was engaged and well we all we all did that um i collected newspapers yeah. um, and because there were paper drives all the time and i i collected uh fat you know when my mother fried bacon and stuff in the cans and then i would take them down to the store um people borrowed me to stand in line to get mayonnaise and things wow to hoard yeah. uh, of course but i didn't know that i was just helping out a neighbor they would borrow a bunch of kids and take them so they could get more jars because it was what they were a customer. Um, and little kids could buy stuff. Like I was a child and I could go to the drugstore and buy codeine cough syrup. All I had to do was sign my name. Whoa. Whoa. And, and if I was sick, I could just go to the pharmacy and tell the pharmacist and he would give me something for it. Wow. I don't know if that was legal or illegal, but it's what happened. Unbelievable. During the Second World War. And we all knitted Afghan squares for the soldiers yeah. Yeah. in school that we all learned to knit so we could knit these squares. 
and uh, I was terrible at crochet. I never could get it, but, <laughs> but I did. I did learn to knit very well. And then I was also part of the American Legion as a child. Mm. And we packed boxes for the soldiers with toothbrushes and socks and stuff like that um, and wrote notes. And I got a letter back a couple of times from somebody that had opened my box that I thing. And I was um, pen pals with a girl in England mm. and I sent her she asked for currants, but I didn't know what currants were, but I figured they were raisins. That's what I was told. So I sent her a box of raisins. Wow. Um, How long did you keep that pen pal relationship? Several years, several years. And I must have thrown at least a dozen. I would say a hundred, but that, I exaggerate a lot. Um, about 10 or 12 bottles with my name and address and in put them off of the pier in Santa Monica and threw them out to hoping to get an answer. Never did. Never Nobody did. found my bottles. Oh, too bad. Or if they did, it was after I moved. But and you've told me that you remember uh, life before Roe v. Wade very well. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, I remember sitting in my car, my 19, uh, my father's car that I had borrowed at the end of an alley where I had dropped my friend off uh, and she had to walk down the alley alone. No one could be with her. And she had $300 that the boy had given her. And uh, I sat there in a panic with my heart slamming in my chest because my father was LAPD, my stepfather, and he was an angry man. Mm. Um, and I was terrified of him. So. She finally came back, staggered back to the car. She was bleeding profusely. And, uh, you know, I'm a teenager. Yeah. But I did what I could. I got her, you know, did what I could for her, what I, the best that I was able yeah. to do at that age and yeah. got her home. Yeah. And she survived. Wow. Wow. But, but another girl in my high school didn't. Oh. Um, it was a girl who had been, uh, had jumped grades, so she was much younger and she shouldn't really have been in high school because she had jumped grades. And of course, she was intellectually able to handle it, but she was not um, old enough to handle the way boys were then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because what boys did then was propose to you in hopes that they would get a little. Oh, my God. And so uh, anyway, she ended up pregnant and she died from the abortion that she got. And um, they wanted to jump my daughter when she was in second or third grade. And I said, no. And they thought I was a terrible mother. And I said, no. You're right to do that, though. Not even. I said, you know, she'll have plenty of time to be intellectual. Right now, she's going to stay with her own age group. That's right. I really support that as a as someone focused on development and social emotional learning. I think even if you're a genius, it's not a good idea to move out of your social emotional peers. Well, she has an she has a really high IQ. Your daughter. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They said she's in the top quarter of the population of the United States, and I said, "That's nice." 
<laughs> stay with her own group. <laughs> I had a friend named Hal who mm. died at 106 by his choice. Wow. He simply was no longer comfortable enough being alive and he decided to drink something, which was his right. He's yeah. 106. Yeah. But he was one of the few people that I always believed knew more than yeah. anybody because uh, he would have been my father's age. Yeah. And I asked him once, because we talked about death, of course, because he's his age, and he liked to talk about it and tell me what he thought about it and mm -hmm. stuff. And um, I said, Do, you know, I know so much more now than I did when I was like 40 or 30. Does that keep happening? And he just smiled at an enigmatic smile and said, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Of course it does. Of course. Yeah. Uh, my dad once said to me, um, he said, you know, somewhere around the age of 50, he thought to himself, man, when I was 16, I thought I knew everything. And then when I was 25, I thought, okay, for sure, I know everything. And then at 30, I realized I didn't know anything. And then at 40, I realized I really didn't know anything. And at, <laughs> and at 50, this is the least I've known. Yes. <laughs> But try 86. <laughs> yes. I, I, I practically don't even know how to get up out of a chair. <laughs> yeah. He just meant like you, because you wind up experiencing so much more, you can't, you actually, of course, gain insight, wisdom, knowledge, experience, but that it's that that really allows you the humility that, that becomes wisdom, you know? Something yeah. Like that. yeah, yeah, yeah. What did your friend Hal have to say about death? Um, well, it's interesting because when he was 98, he broke his hip. Oh. And I thought then, oh shit, we're gonna lose Hal because when you're 98 and you break your hip, you die. It's yeah. gear. And we talked about it when he was in the, uh, the recovery house. And uh, he said, you know, he said, I could feel right then that I could let go and just slip away. He said, it was very obvious to me that I could just do that and it would be mm. different. Wow. But I was working on something and I really wanted to finish it up. So I did what I had to do to come back. Wow. Wow. That is something. Yeah. That is something. Yeah. He sort of took the fear of death away from me. Did he? How did he do that? Just by his ability to, I don't know. He was an artist. He just made it, uh, he made it a creative process? Yeah. Yeah. We talked about it a lot. You know, not all the time. It wasn't our only topic of conversation. But it wove in and out of things because he was... So I mean, have that many more years left for sure. Somehow, I assume it becomes sort of omnipresent at some point. I feel like even for me, as I approach, you know, genuine middle age, right? And I, I watch my parents and my aunts and uncles age. I, it become it's like it comes toward you a bit. There's just a kind of, um. 
my experience of youth is it feels very limitless. There's so much energy, everything, that idea is so distant. And then as the body changes and the people around you change, it just kind of comes in just a little closer and closer. And there's got to be a point where um, there's this man named James Hollis. He's written a bunch of books. He's a Jungian psychoanalyst. And I interviewed him in January and he's 82. And he said um, to me that three of his friends had died that week. Oh. And, and I said, I'm so sorry. And he said, thank you. I, it is, it is, I'm in the zone, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. And I thought that's gotta be so its own initiation, you know, its own psychological deepening, its own spiritual awakening, its own task. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Shirley recently died, not recently, maybe a year ago died. I'm sorry. That friend. And, um, you know, Hal is gone. Yeah. Um, and some of my other friends are gone as well. Um, and some of them aren't. Some of them are here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, your, your reaction to that changes as you get older. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine yeah. it has to. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a softer thing. Yeah. I can't imagine losing a child. That, no. that would, no, I, can't, no. I can't imagine that. Me either. It's so far the only people that have passed have been people that are older that you would expect to pass. So that's very fortunate. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways, I was born lucky and under protection. Yeah. I believe in numerology. I'm a nine, which is protection. Okay. Yeah. And so I've always felt protected. Mm. When I was little, I thought it was my father. Mm-hmm. protecting me from the ether yeah um, but maybe. over the years I maybe who knows I yeah. I'm I am not a person who scoffs at any of those ideas yeah me either yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not I'm not a true believer that's putting my whole life on the line with it and yeah. I'm not a I'm a, I don't know yeah. yeah maybe so that seems wise yeah yeah, yeah. Somehow, somehow I have some wisdoms. Actually, this is a kind of perfect segue to one of the question that I ask everyone at the end of any conversation, which is, what is one thing, one thing that you wish everyone knew? That things will change. Mm -hmm. No matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, if you are happy or you're in such despair that you wish to kill yourself, things will change. Wow. Okay, I lied. I have a follow-up question. (laughs) (laughs) Carol, do you, if you had to describe your spiritual view on being alive, being a person, what the point is, what do you think it is? Well, biologically, I was, my point was to have children and do my best to prepare them for adulthood 
and send them off into the world to do their best. Yeah. Biologically. Spiritually. I feel a lot of love and kindness for most people. Mm. I mean, you have to be a real asshole to get me to not like you. <laughs> um, and there are some real assholes, of course. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't mean give everyone a break while they're picking your pocket right. you know, or doing something bad to you. But but you feel that one of your jobs is to love and care for and be kind for christ's sake be kind yeah it doesn't cost you anything to be kind and what do you gain by being a jerk with somebody or you know i have a very quick wit yeah i know in my youth i could have taken someone down and used to when guys when it was back in the 50s and guys would put their hand on your knee. I remember pouring a drink on the guy's crotch that had his hand on <laughs> You know, um, and I had lots of zingers. I could just cut a guy in half or another woman or whatever. Mm -hmm. I have that capacity, but why? Yeah. Why? It's a skill that I don't use because mm -hmm. it doesn't suit me. It doesn't suit who I believe that I am and where I think I'm coming from. And it pollutes my spirit to go there. Yeah. And yeah. I am I am interested in non-pollution of my spirit. Wow. So if someone's gonna make me be awful, I'll just leave. You know, if they were threatening one of my children, then I'll deck them before I leave. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> you <know>. yeah. <laughs> oh good. Um, uh, I feel so enlivened and enriched by this. You're such a remarkable oh, person. I'm so glad that I have gotten to know you by some chance. Well, thank you. I'm very happy that I've gotten to know you too. I want to express my endless and ongoing gratitude to Carol for befriending me and sharing her history in all of its personal, rich vulnerability with me and with all of us today. The Hidden World is edited and produced by David Gomez. Our theme song is written and recorded by David Gomez. And I'm your host, Whitney Logan. Be good to yourselves and each other. <laughs>